Thank you for being out this evening. Tonight ends our study in the book of Revelation. I am going to be away for the next two Sundays, Lord willing, back on October the 20th. And um, we are starting a new series. It's going to be quite different. Uh, I'm going to be talking about our church, beginning by talking about our philosophy of missions and discipleship, and then moving into another few areas of ministry within the life of our church and looking at the scriptural foundation as to why we do the things that we do. Uh, I'm going to be down on the lower level. Uh, I'm going to be taking questions and giving answers, Lord willing. Uh, not the first night, but uh, in subsequent nights. It'll be more of a, a dialogue quite different than what we normally do on a Sunday night. We invite you back for that. I trust it will be helpful and give you uh, much to think about in terms of our church, our worship, our approach to uh, ministry. So that begins in uh, two weeks. Tonight we're looking at Revelation chapter 22. I've entitled it, Looking Forward to the Lord's Return, and I'm focusing on verses 6 through 21. For these verses provide for us, as I have here, an epilogue or a conclusion or application to the prophecy that is given throughout this book. We're now coming to a close of the book of Revelation. And so we ask the question, what is to be the takeaway? What is to be our overall response to the book of Revelation? What should we have gotten from this book? And how should it be thought of and remembered and approached the next time we open the book of Revelation? The theme is we're to prepare ourselves for the Lord's return. The structure of the epilogue is as follows. There are three statements of the truth that the Lord is coming quickly, combined with three applications to our own lives in light of the Lord's return. So notice, first of all, the three statements that the Lord is coming soon. That provides the outline for verses uh, 6 through 21. The first statement comes in verse 7. And behold, I am coming soon. Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12. Behold, I am coming soon. Revelation twenty-two twenty. 20. Surely, I am coming soon. So it's hard to miss that the emphasis in this application and dialogue is the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming soon. Then there are three applications in light of the Lord's return. First one in verse 7, Behold, I'm coming soon. And now here's the application. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Then Revelation twenty-two twelve. 12, again the statement, Behold, I'm coming soon. Here's the application. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what is done. And then once again, Revelation 22, 20, surely I am coming soon. Here's the application. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So we want to unpack this epilogue now as we look at the first 
a consideration of the statement of the Lord is coming soon. We're not to lose sight of the Lord's return. For notice the exhortation in Revelation 22.7 is, Behold, I am coming soon. Again, the same words in Revelation chapter 22.12. Behold, I am coming soon. When we read in the uh, New Testament, we often find the word behold, especially in the Gospels, in narratives. Behold. Uh, this is something that we are to stop or consider to consider. It's an exclamation point in uh, the passage. This is something to reflect upon, to consider. Behold, behold. I love word pictures, and the word behold means to look at, stop, consider, reflect upon, see. See this, understand this, reflect upon this. Behold, all right? Keep it before your eyes. I am coming soon. So number two, we are always to be living in light of an anticipation of the Lord's return. That is to be constantly before us. That is what we're to be thinking about. That is part of our long-range vision, to ever keep in mind that the Lord is returning. And in fact, God gave us an ordinance to remind us of the Lord's return. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Now these words, until he comes. So the purpose of communion is to remind us of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the significance of his death in light of that coming. So there is this ordinance that has been established to force us, if you will, to remember. Uh, to keep ever before us this idea that the Lord is returning. Secondly, we're not to lose confidence in the Lord's return. Revelation 22:20. 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon, with the emphasis on the word surely. The Lord's return is sure. It is inevitable. God's word is reliable. In Revelation 22, 6, he said to me, these words are trustworthy. Uh, you can bank on it. Uh, the things that God reveals to us uh, are the things that he will do. Um, the idea there is reliable. God keeps his word. God keeps his promise. He said that Jesus said he is returning. He is going to do that. And God's word is factual. For it says in Revelation 22, 6, he said to me, these words are trustworthy and they are true, genuine, authentic, real. There is substance to what is being said. And not just some kind of mystical good feeling that's trying to be communicated. It's to be taken literal. It is to be banked and upon that the Lord Jesus is, in fact, returning. And then thirdly, God's word will be fulfilled. Revelation 22, 6. These words are trustworthy, true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophecies, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Must. It, it has to. Uh, it is absolutely necessary. Uh, God cannot be faithful without it taking place. 
Uh, there is nothing that can stand in the way. Uh, there is no alternative. This is going to be a reality. Jesus Christ is coming back. Number two, the book of 2 Peter anticipates that there will be those who lose confidence in the Lord's return. Now, I am presently teaching the book of 2 Peter in Sunday school, so I'm not going to expand upon this a great deal, but it is certainly relevant to what we are looking at tonight. And there has been this warning, as we saw this morning in Sunday school, that there are going to be false teachers. And uh, these false teachers are going to even deny uh, the Lord Jesus Christ that bought them. And one of the things that they are going to deny, uh, some of them, is the Lord's return. And if you look at 2 Peter 3, 3, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. That's mockery. Uh, they are going to belittle. They're going to ridicule uh, trust and confidence in the Lord's return. Following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So they are asking the question, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? Where is the promise of his coming? Why isn't it fulfilled? Number three, one reason for losing confidence in the Lord's return is that he will not come as soon as some anticipate. That uh, this whole aspect of I'm coming soon, Revelation 22.20, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The word soon can be translated quickly or swiftly as it is in the NAS. And behold, I am coming quickly. And the King James, I am coming quickly. It could mean that when these things start happening, they will take place in quick succession. Once we see the events of the book of Revelation unfolding, the time is short, the time is near. Uh, it is obvious that once those things start happening, that the generation that's alive at that day is going to see the Lord's return. And that's one way in which you could look at this passage and say, well, he's coming quickly. Uh, that when this ball starts rolling, it's going to take place very, very quickly. Or it could mean soon in a relative sense. And I lean a little more to this uh, idea that uh, soon has to be understood relatively. What is a long time to us is a short time to God. This is the application that Second Peter makes in regard to that question. Uh, why hasn't he yet come? And uh, it says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fill his promise, as some people count slowness. Uh, another way of translating that is Lord is not slack, as some people count slackness. In other words, God is not dilly-dallying, and uh, God is not uh, 
being irresponsible. <laughs> He's not a procrastinator, nor has he forgotten his promise. But there is an intentionality, and I'm not going to get into that tonight. I will look at that uh, in Sunday school as we're going to look at why hasn't the Lord Christ returned yet, and he tells us why, but that's not for tonight. The aspect here is that soon is a relative term. And to put it in perspective, I have number two, we have not yet waited as long for the Lord's return as the Old Testament saints awaited the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when uh, uh, God had said to Eve that the uh, serpent's heel would be bruised and referring to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are thousands of years that uh, were elapsed before Jesus Christ was born. And there were a lot of people that had lost confidence in the birth of the Messiah, that they had been waiting and waiting and waiting for his birth, and his birth had not yet come, and so people began to scoff and ridicule. Just keep in mind that the distance between the first coming and the second coming, we're on the short side of that. Uh, that there are less years, even though 1,900 years have passed, that is far less than the prophetic period of time from man's fall to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're still soon, all right? Uh, we still should not lose sight of the reality of his coming. Number two, the responses that we should have in light of the Lord's return. The response that we should have in light of the Lord's return is to keep the words of the book of Revelation. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. We could understand that, excuse me, as saying we're to live in keeping with the words of the book of Revelation. Uh, we should keep it. We should obey it. We should follow its exhortations. I think that is very true. But uh, <clears throat> it seems to me that the emphasis, though, is a little different. And that is that uh, we are to guard the words of the book of Revelation. Genesis 4.9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? This was, of course, after Cain had uh, slain Abel. Uh, and uh, Cain's answer is, he said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? It is in that sense. Uh, Cain is saying, am I my brother's guardian? Is it my responsibility to look after Abel? Am I his babysitter? And the answer is yes, Cain, that is your responsibility. You are to guard, you are to protect your brother, you are to watch over him, but you murdered him, you killed him. You did the exact opposite of keeping your brother. So, I would submit to you that what is the emphasis is, is that we're to guard the book of Revelation by not allowing anyone to either add or to subtract from its words. Notice the application that's given us in the text. Revelation 22:18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, 
God will add to him the plagues described in his book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this, the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. So the application that our text makes to guarding or to keeping the words of this book is that we protect it, we watch over it, so that no one adds to it or takes away from it. It's an interesting application because there is so much temptation in the teaching and the reading of the book of Revelation is that people don't guard it. They don't keep it. They don't refrain from adding to or taking away. If there's any book in the Bible that's abused, it's the book of Revelation. If there's any book in the Bible where there is countless speculation and authoritative teaching that goes way beyond what is clearly revealed, it's the book of Revelation. We are to guard it. We are to keep it. We are to discipline ourselves to stay with what it says and not depart from it by either adding to it or taking away. And I submit to you that's a challenge. It's a challenge for a number of reasons. First, it's a challenge because all of us would like to know more. All of us would like to understand it better. All of us would like it, the gaps to be filled in. And so there's a tendency to look elsewhere to fill in the gaps. There is no authoritative teaching elsewhere. There is no way to gain better understanding than what is already recorded in this book. Now, we can read commentaries, and we can hear sermons, and we can <clears throat> try to understand it more fully or better, but the temptation is to go beyond what it says, and as I say, to try to start filling in the gaps. And uh, so what we are exhorted to do is to guard this book by not letting anybody add to it or take away. That requires discipline. It requires discipline as you teach it. It requires discipline as you seek to understand it, uh, as you receive it, uh, to take the book of Revelation and stay within the confines of what this book says. And uh, it is this passage, really, that has governed uh, my approach to the book of Revelation. I have tried hard to discipline myself to stay with what it says and not go beyond and not take anything away, but just put it forth. That is the responsibility. Then, interestingly enough, number four, we're to guard the book of Revelation by not closing it off. Revelation 22.10, he said to me, now note these words, do not seal up the words of this prophecy in this book. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy. That means don't relegate this book so that it isn't opened, uh, so that it isn't uh, read, so that it isn't understood. Don't seal it up. The uh, Jewish people were very concerned about taking the name of the Lord in vain. 
And uh, so the, the rabbis, as they tended to do, uh, they came up with laws to keep people from sinning. And the rabbis came up with the idea that if you never say the name of God, you can't take it in, in vain. So they taught the people that they should never uh, say Jehovah, period. Uh, so that if you never say Jehovah, their thought was, well, you can't take his name in vain. And it got to the point where uh, when they read the scriptures, they would not even say the name Jehovah. Uh, they would uh, substitute uh, Adonai, which means Lord. Uh, so whenever the word Jehovah appeared in the text, when it was read publicly, it was read Adonai. And the result is, now this day, uh, scholars argue about how is God's name pronounced. And you will hear people that say Jehovah, and you will hear people that say Yahweh. And the reality is we don't really know uh, what are the proper vowels. Is it Jehovah or is it Yahweh? What is the exact pronunciation? We don't know. It's been lost. For it wasn't even pronounced for generations. The idea is this book isn't to be lost. This book isn't to be relegated. It's not to be set aside. But don't seal it up, all right? That's not the way to guard it. My dad, uh, my dad was extremely frugal. And, uh, you know, he grew up in the Depression like many people did. And uh, so um, he was careful with his stuff. And uh, one of the things that, that he have a tendency to do was uh, if you gave him something new, he wouldn't use it. My, uh, my dad, <clears throat> one of the things that he had is he had these really big, thick work, they weren't gloves, they were mittens. They were big, thick work mittens because he worked out in the cold a lot and uh, many, many, mending fence and working on machinery and stuff. And these things were just falling apart. So each year, you know, one of the gifts he'd always get were these work mittens because they were always looking terrible. Well, I didn't even realize it until my dad died and we were cleaning out his stuff, and he had about 20 pairs of these work mittens that he squirreled away because uh, he didn't want anything to happen to them. He wanted to keep them, and so he kept using these worn-out gloves. He had candy in his drawer that was given to him probably five years ago for Easter that he was saving and preserving. And of course, that candy rotted, and it was no good. Uh, the book of Revelation is not valuable if we just put it on a shelf, if we, we set it aside, if we treat it as though, well, I, I don't understand this book, and, and uh, I certainly don't want to mess up what this book says, so I just won't read it. I, I, I'll just relegate it to some other realm and just kind of forget about it. And that's the other tendency in evangelicalism. The one is to add to it and to go beyond what it says, and the other is to simply ignore it. Uh, just say it's an enigma, it, it, we can't really understand it. And there's a tendency, I think, even in our own lives uh, to say they're much more profitable portions of the scriptures that I understand uh, better. And so if you're not on some kind of reading schedule uh, that is going to force you to read, and that's one of the reasons I like reading through the Bible in a year, uh, but if you're just uh, willy-nilly uh, 
picking chapters and of the Bible that you like or enjoy or uh, portions of scripture that really minister to you or give you comfort or whatever. Uh, I would submit that the book of Revelation is going to get relegated and to uh, obscure uh, use. So when it's talking about uh, guarding this book, it's not talking about locking it up and uh, putting it into a safe and presenting it 30 years later to another generation. Uh, it is to be used. It is to be believed. It is to be followed. Um, so do not seal up the words of this prophecy. B, the next response that we should have in light of the Lord's return is that we should anticipate the reward that accompanies the Lord's return. Behold, I am coming soon. Now here's the application. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. The scripture teaches that there is going to be this, this reward that is going to be dispensed to the faithful when he comes. Number one, this teaches us that whatever we have sacrificed in this life is not to be compared to the reward that is to come in the next. Luke 18, 28 to 30. Peter said, and he's speaking to Jesus, See, we have left our homes and followed you. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Serving God is never, ever a waste. And serving God is never, ever, in the truest sense, a sacrifice. You know, you'll hear people's testimony of all that they gave up in order to serve the Lord. I gave up being a pro baseball player in order to serve the Lord. I gave up being a world-famous musician in order to serve the Lord. I made the ultimate sacrifice in order to serve the Lord. Jesus teaches us that none of us has given up anything of which the reward is not far more valuable. Whatever it is that we give up, and it's talking in the text of Luke, even children, even spouses uh, that uh, are forfeited in our service for the Lord, that whatever, when he comes, it's a greater reward than anything that we have sacrificed. So don't get a sense of woe is me, pity me, because I am serving the Lord. But look to the reward. Uh, when he comes, it will have been worth it all. Number two, which is close. This teaches us that lives lived for the Lord are not lived in vain. First Corinthians 15, 55 and following. Oh, death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Many of you know that I've adopted that as my life verse. That is a verse that I memorized long before I went into the ministry, but it was a... a verse that guided my thoughts about ministry and encouraged me in ministry. Your labor is never in vain. You may not see the outcomes that you'd like. You may not 
see the success in the way in which the world is deeming success. But you, if you are faithful in giving other people the word of God, if you're being faithful in presenting the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are being faithful, your life is not wasted. It is not in vain. Even those that have given their life, even those that we, we think of that, that have gone to take the, the gospel to other nations that end up being slain, persecuted, it's not in vain because the Lord is coming and with him comes his reward. To be faithful is not in vain. Closely related. Number three, this teaches us that the struggles to overcome life's obstacles is worth it. Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Just looking at the underlying sections. Revelation 2.11, To the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation 2.17, To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Revelation 2.26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Revelation 3.5, to the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And then Revelation 21.7, this final capsulation. The one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. It will be worth it. Number four, this teaches us that the rewards will be a powerful, motivating influence. Paul writes, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. He's talking about his physical bodies. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For which cause we faint not. Paul is talking about why he doesn't give up. What keeps Paul going? He says, I get cast down. But not to ultimate despair. I experience hardship, but I keep going on. What keeps him going? 2 Corinthians 4, 16. For which cause we faint not. But though our outward man perishes. All right, though I've got all these bodily aches. Although my body is failing me. <clears throat> Though our outward man perish, 4.16, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're back to this idea, behold, the Lord's coming. To keep your eye focused on the goal, to keep your eyes continually looking at the Lord is returning. The Lord is returning. And just don't look at life at this moment, at this particular time in which I live. Don't just 
Focus on your limitations. Don't just look at you're growing old and you have pains and you don't walk as good as you used to walk and all these other things. But look at the fact that the Lord is returning and this life is but a moment and that is eternity. And Paul says when I can keep that in view, I keep going. And though the outward body is perishing, he says, but inwardly, I'm being renewed day by day. Inwardly, I'm as strong as I was when I was a kid. Inwardly, I am still as committed to the things of God as I ever was. Inwardly, I look for and long for the Lord's return more than I ever did. I am growing. I am healthier inside than I was 10 and 15 and 20 years ago. I may not be as healthy physically, but I'm even stronger spiritually than what I once was. As we look at and remember the Lord's return. See, the third response that we should have in light of the Lord's return is that we should pray for and welcome the Lord's return. Pray for and welcome the Lord's return. Revelation 22, 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And here's the response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Uh, amen. So be it. Come, Lord Jesus. Matthew 6, 9. Jesus taught us to pray. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're to be praying for the kingdom to be established. We're to be praying for the Lord to come. We're to pray, Lord, come soon. Come soon. You've promised to come. You've promised to come soon. Come soon. Number one, the unrighteous need to dread the Lord's return. Revelation 1.7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Even despite this, come Lord Jesus. There are going to be people that are going to be destroyed when he comes. But even so, come Lord Jesus. They have reason to be afraid. They have reason to fear his return. Number two, we should not let the indifference of the unrighteous to the Lord's return diminish our longing for the Lord's return. It says, even so, amen. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. All right? It, it, it's strong language. Let him be damned. All right? If, if they don't love the Lord, well, let them be damned. Our Lord come. All right? For we have a different end. Revelation 22, 11. It's a, a verse that is often misunderstood. Revelation 22:11. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. <laughs> and so, you know, people say, what, what do you mean, let the evil still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy? Does that mean that uh, we are not to evangelize and all of a sudden? No, no, it's not saying that at all. All it's simply saying is this. What does people's unrighteousness have to do with me? What do other people's denial of the Lord's return have to do with me? All right? If they want to live unrighteously, fine. 
but I'm going to live righteously. If they want to deny the Lord's return, okay, but I'm going to be committed to it. The idea is don't be taken in. Don't be influenced by an ungodly world around you. Keep focused. Keep a determination. Let the ungodly believe and act in accordance with their belief. Let us be godly and act in accordance with our belief. And that is in the Lord's return. And just forget about all the noise out there and focus on what we believe and what we know to be true. So, number three, rather, we should be longing for the Lord's return. Uh, Romans 8, we've been through this passage, and it, it's a passage dealing with suffering. And it says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It says we groan, we long for this return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want him to come. For when he comes, everything is set right. When he comes, everything becomes glorious. When he comes, we no longer deal with evil and sin. When he comes, there is no more pain. There is no more sorrow. When he comes, he sets everything right. We long for, for this world will never be what it needs to be until the Lord returns. The solution to war, the solution to poverty, the solution to the evils of this world will never be fully addressed and dealt with until Jesus returns. If we want to see a better world, if we want to see a better place, and if we want to know a, a true utopia, then come Lord Jesus, for that's the only answer. That's the ultimate solution. Application. The child of God should want no delay in the Lord's return. For there is no earthly joy that can compare to the joy that will be experienced by the child of God of the Lord's return. There is no reason for us not to want the Lord Jesus to come quickly. That's an important takeaway in the book of Revelation. I know sometimes when people read the book of Revelation, they get scared and they read the book of Revelation. Well, if that happens, we're not reading it right. We're, we're to look forward to it, we're to long, we're to say, even so come Lord Jesus. I remember many years ago, when I was a youth pastor, and I was talking about the Lord's return. And I remember like it was yesterday, I had this one teenage girl come up to me and said, I don't want Jesus to come back yet. I want to get married first. Well, I understand that. I understand somebody looking forward to getting married. But I'll tell you, if the Lord comes back before you're married, you won't regret it. There is nothing that is of greater pleasure and joy than the Lord's return. 
And so we should, with longing, be praying, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, for we have nothing to fear. Conclusion, the great takeaway from the book of Revelation is that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the unrighteous will be judged and condemned. At the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Christ as Savior will be accepted and blessed. Here's the great takeaway, these last two. The unrighteous should fear and dread the Lord's return. For them, those who do not know Christ, it is woe. It is hardship. It is misery. Trust in Jesus Christ for he is returning and when he comes, there is no opportunity for repentance. There is no opportunity for salvation. Those who have not trusted in Christ are lost. But he, the child of God, should welcome and even long for his return for it is a time of acceptance and blessing. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to dread if we have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be welcomed. We're going to be his children. We are going to be living with him forever and ever in a place that is far superior in situation and experience to anything we know now. So come. So come. So come. Let's be praying for the Lord to come. Our Father, we thank you that you sent your Son into this world. Not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. That Jesus died on the cross to bear our sins, rose again, ascended, even to the right hand of the Father, and promised that even as we have seen him go, he is going to come in like manner. Lord, we believe that Jesus is going to descend from the clouds. He's going to step foot on this earth. And there is going to be a millennium and there's going to be a new heaven and there's going to be a new earth. All of these incredible works that Jesus is going to perform. And uh, Lord, I just pray you would give us, first of all, confidence in that return. Lord, may we not question its validity, its truthfulness, its reality. May the years that have passed since Christ's ascension not diminish our belief in his return. But let us reflect on and understand that even as your first coming was promised in the Old Testament and saints waited for literally thousands of years, but Jesus was born. Even so, Jesus is returning. And Lord, we say, amen. Come quickly. Come, Lord. Set this world in order. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. We rejoice to be your people. And we look forward to a time in eternity that we are fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ knowing each other with a new intimacy, loving each other with no sinful connotations, fully accepting and appreciating 
and reveling in our relationship to each other and to you. So, Lord, come. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. And you are dismissed.